Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I take as my text the old R&B hit, the refrain of which was, you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. Uh, It wasn't until the last soldier of the First World War had finally fallen off his twig that remembrance started to become a huge industry in this country. Uh, And it wasn't until... Pretty much record shops had disappeared from every high street that people started uh, sentimentally recalling the, the virtues of record shops, starting National Record Store Days, and also, finally, writing a book about record shop culture, which is what we're here to talk about this evening. It's an extraordinary book called Going for a Song, a chronicle of the UK record shop, and it's written by our guest this evening. Would you welcome Garth Cartwright? Now, Garth, start with a confession. It's a book about the UK record shop, but you're not from the UK, are you? Yeah, I should confess before anyone kind of uh, twigs it from my accent that I come from down <laughs> under. Never I'm, I'm a Kiwi. Right, OK. So the question we generally ask people when they do word in your ear is, can you remember the, the record player or music-making machinery that you had in your house when you were a, chil- a child? My, I can't remember what it was. My, my folks weren't at all into music. My dad had a few Gilbert and Sullivan records and, and, and not much else. So it was an abusive household, you can say. And, <laughs> and, and uh, I'd go around to other kids' houses and their parents would have Mamas and the Papas and Neil Diamond and all that kind of stuff. And I would just long after it and look at those covers and touch them. So, so it was a long-range campaign, was it, on your part, to get a proper record player? It was a long-range campaign to get anything, like records or a record player or such like. So, right. so we had one of those real cheap kind of wood boxes that, obviously not the old radiogram or something, something they bought in the 70s that you could play records on, but it certainly wasn't a, a, a manufacturer of note. So when did you come to the UK? 91. Right. And were record shops a large part of, your, of the appeal of coming to the UK at the time for you? There, there was something that had fascinated me for a long time. I was a little punk rock kid in New Zealand, and obviously what we got out there was the Sex Pistols and the Clash, you know, on the big labels. 
But if I wanted what I was reading about in sounds in the NME, I'd order them from Small Wonder and Rough Trade and places like that. So I had this long connection back to my early adolescence of uh, getting records uh, in the post from these places that are advertised in the back of the Inkies. Far away places with strange sounding names. Yeah, very and good. I mean, it's very exotic to get, I say, a Cockney Rejects 45. <laughs> Take that into school. <laughs> Everyone in the fourth one was impressed. Wow. <laughs> So what was uh, – how long have you been working on this book? Because it started as a bigger book, didn't it? It's a pretty big book as it is. It is a pretty big book. I got the idea in 2009 when everything was crashing. I thought there had once been so many great shops because I'm one of those people that love music and can't sing a note or play a note, so I've spent my life buying music. And uh, I noticed the huge tower in Piccadilly. I used to work for their magazine – um, whatever it was called. <laughs> I had a free magazine oh, that used Pulse. to... Pulse. Pulse, yeah. And, um, Who could forget? You. Yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. Well, they didn't pay very well, so... Yeah. Uh, this is your revenge. Yeah. <laughs> Tower had gone virgin. They changed the name to Zavi and a, and a yes. bit of Branson. I don't want to see sh- virgin shops all over the UK and Europe, I guess. And so... Uh, there were closed Zavvies everywhere. The wonderful Berwick Street in Soho that had, had been just like um, a rat run of rabbit yeah. record shops everywhere, even in little basements and up above. Suddenly the huge selector disc was gone and all the others were gone. So you thought, this is my opportunity to record a moment of history as, it, as it's passing? I guess I thought, let, let, let's try and tell a few stories because I knew the punk stories, I knew the reggae stories. And I had a friend who... Uh, runs a website called the British Record Shop Archive who tell me about places like Durbell's right. and that from back in the day when you know there were great jazz and blues shops and such like. So that's when I started the research, way back then. Okay, so your book goes back you know, in the midst of history. We're looking here at a, at a, a picture of, a, I suppose, a Victorian record shop with a huge, great kind of horned uh, reproduction machine there on the counter and a rather severe lady... Um, probably wearing black bombazine behind yeah. the counter. Yeah, that's um, amazing, that photo. I've never seen it before tonight, so I'm very <laughs> impressed. So uh, tell us about the early record shops in the UK, the very early record shops. Are we talking about cylinders? The, exactly. The wax cylinder is put on sale in 1890, and uh, the people in the US that own it come over. They do that thing out of London, of sitting up in London, setting up franchises to sell it, and doing some local recordings to see what the market wants. Because first they were issuing uh, you know, a, a, American music, which was uh, either opera singers, light opera singers, or light dance music, things like that. And they got requests for uh, Scottish jigs and things like that. And immediately, this is the new technology, having a wax cylinder player of the time, it was successful. People that had money wanted it. I mean, the wax cylinder had been invented thinking it was going to be a secretarial tool or to record voices for sentimental reasons. When someone's passed, uh, you can listen to their voice again. It very quickly took off as to listen to music. And so we. So, had... so entertainment wasn't part of the original plan, was it, Rick? No, it wasn't. It, it was, was really recording... thought as, a, as an office functional right. thing. And, and I think they first tried it with getting speeches by generals and politicians and those kind of things. But quickly it became... What sold wax cylinders was uh, music. And so we have the world's oldest record shop in Cardiff, Spillers, and they started in 1894 selling not just wax cylinders. They were obviously 
a, you know, a, what we would call, I guess, electrical goods store of the time. But they were selling wax cylinders from 1894, and Cardiff was a big, big coal town at the time. So it would have had the money there for getting, which so would have been prosperous expensive. Prosperous enough to sustain. Prosperous enough to sustain. And um, Levi's, a, a famous shop in Whitechapel, likes to state it started in 1890, and even their old ads would be saying, I'm um, from the days of the cylinder. And it seems like they started <laughs> as this Jewish family who are doing. Uh, Repairs to um, knit, knitting machines, sewing, sewing machines, machines and that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then they started selling the cylinders on the side. Again, the demand for the cylinders overtook. And very soon, by the early 20th century, they had what they called uh, the largest record shop in London. Right. 100,078s. 78s came out in 1902 and very quickly overtook uh, the wax cylinder. By 1910, they'd stopped making wax cylinders and it was all 78s. So presumably the big boom came when kind of dance music came in and people bought records because I think in about the 1930s people were about 2 million people a week were going out weren't they dancing and wanting to buy records to take home and dance to and use well, them Absolutely and I think we can go back a bit before 1930 straight after World War I jazz took so off. So jazz, American jazz. Right. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Jazz, jazz was the first what we can say African American phenomenon to hit here. Yeah. Even though the first jazz band that came here the original Dixieland jazz band were white guys. It was very quickly followed up by, as the British seem to do, of checking out who actually yeah, kind of yeah. created this stuff yeah, and yeah. Uh, buying black jazz. Sidney Bechet arrived here in 1919 and stayed for a bunch of years. And again, the shop Levi's, he was noted for hanging out there because it obviously had the jazz imports and yeah. such like that. So I think the 1920s, post-World War One, people wanted to dance. They wanted to get away from all the sadness and the angst and, 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 and records are flying out and, and they price them at different rates. If you were buying a, a Berliner, so a classical recording on HMV, it cost you a lot more than it did a Music Hall 78 on Zonophone, owned by the same company, yeah. but they did that thing of differential pricing for the different uh, musics and the different you know, uh, classes they were trying to sell the, the records to. We're both uh, old enough to remember a time when record shops were actually part of the electrical housekeeping, you know, yeah. electrical. and you, you, uh, the one in my, my uh, local shop near Guildford used to go in and it sold hoovers and yep. two-bar electric fires. It sold gramophones as well, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it sold toasters. You went past all that. There was a little tiny booth with a bloke who looked like um, Peter Noon of, of Herman's Hermits, <laughs> nearly always, with a little thin tie. And he had the little, you know, 45s and EPs. And that's where you bought them. They weren't record shops. They were electrical shops. Right. Was, yeah, or, mu- or musical shops, weren't yeah. they? But uh, you were very often served by a gentleman in a white coat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he, he, he looked yeah. as if he was kind of qualified to sell you, mm. you know, <laughs> a searcher single or something. That's like that. right, yeah. He looked at you rather disapprovingly. That's you know, right. But yes. they were, you know, they, they were, there were family firms in, you know, every every town in, in the UK. But the, we're looking at a picture now of the, the, the great first HMV sh- shop that, Opened just after the war, I think. Yeah, 1921. 21. Yeah. Again, it's it's that ragtime, isn't it? It's, yep. Which is as big as hip hop, yep. if not bigger. You know, for quite a long time, wasn't it? It was absolutely yep. the term dance craze was invented around that time because everyone was going out and dancing, and they were taking dance lessons and having dances, and you'd have someone with their gramophone putting, uh, you know, the needle to. Yeah. Uh, 
the 78 and everyone doing all these crazy dances. And you had, obviously, papers like the Daily Mail, you know, shouting about this American nonsense and it's you know, amoral yeah. and such. Yeah. But, yeah, there was a, da- you know. Still doing it. We think dance crazes are new things. I mean, the specials, that two-tone movie is called Dance Craze. The dance craze goes way back and people were dancing to records. I mean, so, so HMV was, was the first arrival of this on a major on a manger shopping h and were selling records, obviously. They were the first company established over here. And they just did that thing of realising, well, we can make more money if we own the shop that sells our records. And they set up. Sir Edward Elgar and his orchestra played on the opening night uh, in the shop. And the great and good sat there and had dinner. And all the press and the public stood outside and watched and... I guess you could compare it to opening of an Apple shop, but it was a lot better than an Apple shop. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but it, was, it had parallels, didn't it? Because the, the Apple shop's interesting because it's a kind of cathedral to the brand, isn't yep, it? It's, absolutely. it's there to make you feel that Apple products are yep. really valuable. And this was doing something similar. And you could only buy music. HMV records as well and RCA, which they had the UK license yes. for. So you couldn't get uh, other label stuff there. So very much it was a branded shop. And uh, the people that worked there were very highly trained. So they were, they'd, they'd, they'd done their testing. They knew their classical. They knew their conductors. And then um, in the basement, they had uh, jazz and pop and things like that. But when you first walked in off Oxford Street, it was all classical. Right. I worked there many years later, but uh, yet yeah, from the mid-'70s. But I think they'd only just dropped uh, the idea of having uh, uniform staff. Oh, and really? when and I white joined, yes. Brian, yeah, I, I missed the white gloves, yeah. but you know, yeah. it was uh, it was kind of blazers and ties yeah. and so forth, company livery. You know, mm-hmm. you, you you were you were a representative of of the brand, and of course, they, this uh, you know that that's a later ad we're looking at here mm-hmm. from. You know, but it's the idea of big record shops. They were rare at that time, weren't they? The idea that you could the, that you could find things. Yep, you know that. Because you didn't have, you know, I think it's one of the things we forget about record shops that um, they were the only means of finding out about anything. Absolutely. I mean, we consider Radio One started in '67. Before that, I mean, to hear new music and and to discuss with people that had your enthusiasms, you really had to go to either record clubs, which people would have, where you'd get together and play your records, or more conveniently, just go to the record shop. And generally, the person behind the counter in record shops, then as now, was pretty obsessed with music. So they could tell you the new releases, what they liked, what they didn't like. They could humiliate you about your lack of knowledge. You know, oh, that kind of surely thing. not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, there's lovely stories about um, Dobells when, yeah. um, you know, uh, I think it's Donovan and uh, Brian Jones mm-hmm. and uh, Bert Yanch and uh, all sorts of people. I mean, everybody just went there and bought records yeah. and it was a kind of club and everybody kind of recommended stuff to Well, Dobells was, first of all, this is on Charing Cross Road. Mm-hmm. Yep, which is a, a very well remembered shop by people who were around at the time, largely because the um, I think one of the key things is they had a really charismatic shopping bag. Yes, it did a brilliant which, bag. Uh, there may be people in here who remembers that remember them, and they were they looked like a you know, they were a, a line of spines of yep. records in in black and white, and you used to take this home and you just. You'd read all the spines mm-hmm. on this thing. But anyway, it started off as a, as a jazz shop, and then they took over the shop next door, yep. and it was jazz there, and it was folk there. Yep. And I remember you were going in the folk shop in about 1968 or 69 or whatever, 
And if you blundered into the jazz shop by mistake, you were almost chased away by, <laughs> by some disapproving... They had a very snooty slogan, didn't they? Something about uh, true jazz fans are born within the sound of doughbells. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Just sort of, they wouldn't want sort of ghastly folk people in there. Yeah. <laughs> But no, Dobell's legendary shop, Doug Dobell, a soldier, he returned in 19, uh, obviously at the end of World War II, and went to work for the family firm, which was, uh, the, Doug, which was the Dobell's antiquarian bookshop. And he, he tried to get, uh, borrow the money to set up a record shop, a jazz shop, and no bank would give it to him. So his dad let him start selling 78s in the corner of the shop. And obviously Chris Barber and all these young jazz fanatics, you know, just went like flies to honey straight through it and he, he quite quickly over the next few years turned the shop from being a, a bookshop into a record shop and it was it seems the first really really good jazz blues folk shop in London one that was obviously getting imports in and having lots of people you know gathering there I mean it's famous that B.B. King when he came to London he used to hold his um meetings with journalists and uh, Ace Records who are reissuing his modern stuff and that in Dobell's and that he loved it. And Dylan recorded, a, didn't he record a yeah, session in the yeah. basement of Dobell's? Dylan Blind Boy Grunt or something? Yes, there's a famous uh, record. It's not a very good record, but um, Doug Dobell set up a label. A lot of record shops have set up labels it seems over the time and his first thing he issued was uh, a Lightning Hopkins LP which I believe John Peel owned and took it to the States and impressed people that he had, you know, this Lightning Hopkins album. He had licensed things in from the States and he'd put out local stuff, put out Ken Collier and jazz musicians like that. And uh, so Eric von Schmidt uh, was in town and uh, Doug Dobell said, well, you know, I'll I'll get you and your mates to do a session and, uh, you know, we'll record it and we'll put it out on my little label. And... uh, Dylan was in town at the time. This is before he's famous when his first record's just come out. And he's been brought over by the BBC. To yeah, 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 he was in it. And, and so yeah. he joins in on it. But because he's signed to CBS or Columbia, he can't be credited on it. So he's credited as Blind Boy Grunt. And uh, it's an album of them singing blues and folk standards. And by the sound of it, they're really uh, smoking jazz cigarettes and drinking lots yeah. and doing what young, young folkies do at the time. Yeah. And that, so it's, a, it's more an interesting document of um, a record shop basement than it is a great record. But it's amazing that you could have that, that all this energy was around yeah. there. But going back to my point that, that about they were the only source of information, it was the only way you found out that something existed. Yeah was going in a record shop. Because even in, the, even in the 70s, when I was working in a record shop, if somebody came in and said, I'm trying to find a record by... You've probably never heard of it. It's by so-and-so, mm-hmm. so-and-so. And you might have heard it, or you might not. Your only means of looking it up was whatever documentation you kept in the shop, yep. which was incomplete, mm-hmm. or a Schwann catalogue, or the mm-hmm. gramophone catalogue, or something, which is published twice a year. You know, there was no immediate information. Right. And so everybody was completely in the dark. You know, that they, they weren't even yeah. sure. You know, lots of records were just rumours to people. Mm. You know, you, 
You didn't the internet, or yeah. and and you you, you didn't, you didn't have a, you'd go in not knowing what you'd find. You know, yeah. you didn't even have an A to Z you know, review section mm. in a, in a in a music paper. Really, no. you know, they reviewed whatever they happened to review that yeah. week, and then it just disappeared, and it was replaced by something else. Whereas these places, you went in there and uh, and you'd go through and you think, my God. There's a record by Lightning Slim here or something. You know? yep. You'd be almost shaking. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was. And uh, you'd have to, I mean, if you could afford it, you'd have to buy it. Yeah. Because the likelihood was that if you came back next week, it wouldn't be there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you'd never see it again. I mean, that was the excitement of what we call crate digging, wasn't it? Just coming across something you didn't know you'd find. And as you say, almost trembling, this record you never thought you'd own. And there yeah. it was. Yeah. And, Carrying it up to the counter and you know making sure no one but grabs they, it up. But records, but record shops were—they were a kind of the, the probably the most powerful bit of what you might call the music media. Yes, yes. I mean, that's uh, how you found out. Yeah, yeah about uh, anything. I think that's why so many labels grew out of them because yeah. so many people were gathering at these shops. And obviously, uh, I interviewed the guy that you know founded Biggest Banquet, and he said a lot of the signings, like Gary Newman. From tapes given across the counter yeah. at the shop, people saying, "We have a band. We listen to us and that." I mean, well, I suppose, I suppose what we're looking at now, we're looking yeah. at a picture, picture of the Beatles in Nems, uh, which is Brian Epstein's or the shop that Brian Epstein ran yep. in Liverpool. That's a little bit of a case of the same kind of thing, isn't it? Absolutely, because yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know the extent to which record shops played such a crucial part in the Beatles getting signed. I mean, I knew that their first record with Tony Sheridan, My Bonnie, was available yeah. to the record. That's how Brian Epstein heard about them, went yeah. to see them and managed them. I knew that they used to come in there and found lots of obscure R&B and soul records that they incorporated in their set. But I didn't realise that it was to do with him owning a record shop that had the connections with the MI and HMV yeah. in London. To explain uh, that story. Uh, absolutely. So Brian Epstein... He runs the most successful record shop, NIMS, outside of London. He was a genius at selling records, as he proved to be a genius at managing a band. He just had an understanding of what the public wanted, how to serve them. Um, you know, and to, he made sure he always had kept his stock up. He'd say he'd have everything um, that was available. And one story didn't go in the book. Um, Spencer Lay, that Liverpool writer, remembered being in NIMS and someone going up to Epstein and saying, have you got the album of Hitler's speeches? And he said, just a moment, I'll check. You've still got it in for you. And so he would sell anything and he would get everything in. Now, he didn't like rock and roll and he knew the Beatles as these yobs that came in to chat up to the, the girls uh, there and, and crowd into the listening booth. And he once asked his staff, do they actually buy records? And he was told, yes, rhythm but and blues. We'll chuck them out. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So he, he was aware Louts. of them, these kind of, you know, yobby teenagers and running through a shop. And then there's a story you mentioned of the youth coming in, Raymond Jones saying, do you have the record by the Beatles and him? Because he ordered one of everything. It shows how, how few records used to be released. That's right. a record shop and order one of everything released everything that, that week. Everything that came out that week, that's right. And he didn't have it. And then he found out it was only German released. And he didn't bring it in. And he started selling it. So he was selling yeah. it as an import. But, yeah... He couldn't get the Beatles a deal. The music industry was completely London-centric. It hasn't changed that much. But he'd come down, and everyone, even Joe Meek, turned him down. So he went into HMV, where he was a very good customer. It was run by a man called Bob Boast, who Brian got on well with because he was a very good customer. And Bob said, look, okay, I'll help you. Go upstairs and talk to the people, because above the HMV in Oxford Street, EMI had um, a little studio, and there were people running up. Publishing offices and things like that. 
And this is how, you know, first the publishers did offer Brian a deal for the publishing. And he said, no, I want a recording contract for my band. And uh, that's when he was told, call this guy, George Martin. So, you know, if it hadn't been for him being such a good customer of uh, EMI, he may have just been another disappointed uh, northerner yeah, told, go, go yeah, away, yeah, yeah. we're not interested in your band and that. But he must have helped also in kind of guiding the career of the Beatles that he knew... He knew what worked at retail, didn't he? Absolutely. So when it came to choosing yeah. the single, you were going yeah. to choose the right single. Yeah. You, you weren't going to yeah. get that kind of thing wrong. I mean, at all. He, he, he was just, you know, a genius for selling things, Brian. I think that's because when Nim started, it was, as you said, it was a white goods store. His family were selling furniture and electrical goods, white goods being fridges and cookers and things. And they had a record bar. Brian dropped out of Rada and his father put him in control of it as in the records and such, and he immediately just took it over. He had that understanding of, it was an element, he liked showbiz, so it's showbiz. He got Anthony Newley to open one of the NIM shops one day, and it caused a massive crowd in Liverpool, comparable to, they say, a cup final. So he, he had an understanding of what the public wanted, how to get them excited, and obviously he brought this into the Beatles, that understanding of what, Let's give the public something right. that really gets them going. So let, let's talk about the, how people used to um, behave in record shops and sample records, whatever. You know, back in the, back in the fifties and sixties. According to your research, did people expect to be able to hear things before they bought them? Uh, absolutely, and and many shops had what you're seeing here as a listening booth. And uh, there's a scene in Quadrophenia, the film about that uh, obnoxious mod where he runs into a record shop and demands they play the new Who single and jumps around uh, to it, then rushes out again. So, yeah, you could go in. And uh, I think this is from, uh, it looks like the listening booths in HMV's Oxford Street. They had them in the basement all along the back wall. And you could go in and request, and the clerks would put the record on for you to listen. And you generally get a few records, and you get told, well, buy it or, you know, you know get out in that sense. But, but fair enough, because you didn't have much chance of hearing it on the radio. You yeah, know, you didn't you, have much Otherwise, chance. you're buying it blind, you know. And then I saw one photo uh, from the 50s of teenagers packed into a booth all listening to rock and roll records. It was such an exciting thing to do, to go in and hear these new releases. But it was also accepted that you kind of had a right to hear it as well. You know what I mean? That you needed to kind of test it. Yes. And, you know, and was it as good as it had sounded on the radio or you'd heard it at a party or whatever? And, and people told me that, especially with West Indians, they insisted you play the record, even if they knew the record, to make sure you're selling them yeah. the right record. Yes. Uh, they wouldn't uh, buy the record, you know, until you'd played it for them, even if they only wanted a few seconds of it. So certainly it was a thing the public that, experimented. That, that hung on until the late 70s, didn't it really, in the UK? You know, most shops would, they'd play something for you, wouldn't they? I guess so. It was so. only when I they started sealing yeah. records and, you know, racking them out yeah. that you could help yourself yep. um, that, that, that they stopped doing it. Well, HMV also, for a long time, the records were behind the counter. Yeah, well, So you had to ask the clerk for the record, and then I guess you could say, can I hear it for a bit and things like that. You couldn't just pick it up and take it to the counter. Although Dobell's from an early age, you were digging through the crates. So the kind of independent shop, I think, encouraged that sense of, get your records and um, buy them. And often, so again, Dobells are so grouchy, I don't think they'd play them for you, unless they agreed that there was a record to be but played. But there was also a ceremony attached to this. That if you chose something, you chose the sleeve from out the rack, you took it up to the counter and said, I want mm-hmm. this. Yep. And they would look in the back, they would pull out the record with the inner yep. bag or whatever. That was just like, to stop you nicking it, though, wouldn't it? 
I think. Well, if yeah. you put the record and, the, and yeah. the sleeve no, no, sure. Well, except later on, this is exactly what everybody yeah. did. They shrunk wrap things and they put them in the sleeve, and that's yep. when they get shoplifted. Yeah. Yep. But prior to that, you couldn't have it. But there was this great ceremony of, of the person behind the counter just putting your record into the, into the correct sleeve, usually while smoking a fag. Yeah. <laughs> Dropping ash Dropping all ash. over. Burning holes in. Everybody, everybody worked behind the, the counter of a record shop. You had uh, to smoke. They, they it's smoked. Compulsory. It was just completely uh, yeah. compulsory. Everybody did it. While listening to jazz. Yeah, yeah. This is a map of... Uh, of, of just to of, give an idea of... Oh, I mean, you incredible. talk in your book about all kinds of shops that I'd forgotten, and I thought I remembered you know, a great deal of these shops... Um, and particularly shops in London, in, mm-hmm. in Soho. They're, and we're looking here at a map of, uh, well, done by the British Record Shop Archive and the Museum of Soho, which is, is a map of how many record shops there were 122 in record shops between 1946 and 96. Yep. Just in Soho. Absolutely. Just between Oxford Street and Piccadilly Circus. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. So tell us, well, you know, what were the ones that particularly interested you? I mean, you, you write about the, the, the chains like Harlequin. Tell us about Harlequin. Well, Harlequin uh, was, it seems, the first record shop opening on Berwick Street. And it was run by uh, Laurie Krieger, who was a little Jewish guy who had been selling ice creams on Oxford Street and things like that. And then he, he saw the record trade. This is late 50s, early 60s. is starting to take off. He opens a Harlequin. I think he might have had a stationer's on Berwick Street. So, again, he turned the basement into a record shop. And it gets popular. And so he starts opening Harlequins everywhere. And he had them right up until the early 70s when he sold the chain to uh, Alprice. And I think he had about 72 shops by then. But that's just saying he's the first on Berwick Street. Berwick Street, as we know, is or has been where the British you know, record shop trade has been you know, at the epicentre for a long time. You had so many shops there. And I remember when dance music took off, Every little cubby hole in Berwick Street, you'd hear techno or house or whatever yeah. blaring out of. You had obviously the famous uh, Black Market Records on Diablo Street. You had that huge selector disc, which is the Nottingham shop, which opened uh, a uh, London branch. You've got Reckless still there. You did have a record and tape exchange, which um, was we'll, famous. We'll, we'll come on more, that more of that later. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you, give it a real kick. So, so, Soho was. Uh, just obviously, the film industry was there. A lot of the uh, and Soho Square was EMI's offices, wasn't it? I think so. No, it's, uh, no, it's Manchester Square. But uh, CBS was in Soho. Uh, Soho, yeah. yeah. I remember there was a record uh, label there, and there was just a lot of musical energies going on there. And you'd see, you know, all the musicians hanging out in the pubs. And I, I mean, I once interviewed Chris Spedding, and he said that even the working musicians, when he came to London from Sheffield would um, hang out in pubs around Soho waiting for you know, the gigs with the dance bands and whatever else. So I just think Soho once was a place where you know, everything musical went on. Tell us about these other chains like Disky, which was a very, very big for a short while, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people set up chains in um, the late 60s, oh no, sorry, the early 60s, into the late 60s, uh, there was one called Musicland, which was Chris Blackwell and Lee Gopthill. Lee Gopthill was uh, a Jamaican who came here as a teenager, although he was an Indian Jamaican, and he met Chris Blackwell initially as his landlord, rented him out uh, property when he first set up Island Records over here, saw the money coming in, especially with My Boy Lollipop. Yeah. And, but first it was hard to sell um, Jamaican records here because the record shops, HMV and that, didn't want to touch them. And the neighbourhood shops didn't understand them. So Gopthel hired West Indian guys to sell them door-to-door. 
you know, you'd go in, in West Indian neighbourhoods, you'd go around with the new releases and that... that just that, knock on the door knock on the say, door. can Are I you interest interested? you in yeah. the... And then, obviously, this was going well enough, so he started setting up music land shops. I think the first one was Notting Hill, then a very, you know, big West Indian community. Then in Berwick Street, a famous music land that was there for years and became a very hip psychedelic shop. Because this, that, it had had a real influence, didn't it? Because up till then, a lot of the shops had just stocked a huge range of stuff, but they didn't specialise. Because right. they specialised, you know, a lot of other shops thought, well, we could do the same with psychedelic music, we could do the same with underground music. Yeah. Am I right? I think Music Land was very influential. Yeah, right? I mean, Music Land you know, kind of rode first the wave yeah. of the West Indians want shops. They, yeah. As they had their own greengrocers and things, and hairdressers, yeah. barbers, they, they wanted their own music shops. And then Gopthal somehow understood that, uh, you know, the, the long-haired kids around Notting yeah. Hill and uh, Ladbrook Grove, they wanted their own shops as well. And, and, and this is where Musicland started bringing in American imports because yeah, what became long-haired rock music, there was so much more... Albums issued in the states, and you can make more money out of long-haired kids than yeah. you could out of anything else. Yeah, and also particularly, they particularly students. Yeah, actually, yeah. Are the people yeah. you could really make money out of. Um, and it became incredibly fashionable because there was. I can remember seeing. We got a shot here of uh, from a Clockwork Orange uh, of the uh, Chelsea drugstore, and I can remember being absolutely thrilled by the sight of this place. You know, that obviously record shops were not just places to go into and you know and look for particular catalogue numbers. Whatever, they were just fabulous places to hang out. You yeah, know? and well, you could. You could order music, I think, from Chelsea Drugstore, and it would be delivered by girls in purple cat suits on motorcycles. Oh, man. Am I right? That's too good. I, I think so. And they I would come round there. Yeah, yeah. That was a fantasy that you I fell. don't know. I think that was true. Because <laughs> there's some, some 17 year old in Farnham who believed that. <laughs> right, if yeah. you order your Pete Brown and the battered ornaments, it would be brought from around me, by a girl in a purple cat suit. No, I think it was. just Judy Goose and look <laughs> will turn up at your, at your door. I don't think it happened. Now, the. the um, I remember going in this in the Chelsea Drugstore. There was a very small record shop there. Mm-hmm. He only sold about ten records. Because <laughs> right. it's sadly now a McDonald's. Isn't yeah, it? it is a McDonald's. Just, I mean, I, I did that sad geek thing of I slowed the DVD down so I could study all the records he had. Yes. And Kubrick didn't change anything other than he put 2001: A Space Odyssey's soundtrack very prominently available. But it was free. It was um, you know all that kind of long-haired rock stuff right. that people were buying at the time in the shop. Um, oh, he put the soundtrack to If. Uh, the Lindsay Anderson yeah. movie, which Malcolm McDowell started. So he, also, he put yeah. little references in there for people yeah. to notice, as film geeks do. But, um, yeah, he kept the shop. It was Tim Buckley Records. Locker is up on the yes, wall there yes, and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So Kubrick but used it. But the residents it. had it closed yeah. down, didn't they? The, the, well, it Richard. seems like the residents didn't like uh, who turned up for the Chelsea Drugstore because it wasn't just a record shop. It was all kinds of... It was an emporium, really, wasn't it? And they uh, protested about it and su- yeah. suffered. We're looking at a picture of Elton John uh, signing copies of his record in what I believe is the Noel Edmonds record shop oh, on King's really? Road. Right, I, d- I did In probably about 1973 or something, signing, don't shoot me, I'm only the piano player. Um, but it, we wanted to talk about the, uh, the the number of kind of musicians who, who worked in record shops or hung about in record shops or regarded record shops as a very important part of their formative experience. Yeah, well, Elton uh, briefly worked in record shop, didn't he? In Musicland, in Berwick Street, yeah, and... Uh, 
Danny Baker, who later worked for the same guys that running One, um, Music Land and One Stop, when yeah. they, they left to another shop, said Elton, when he wasn't on tour, would still come and work behind the counter. He, he loves would. record shops. And, and people uh, would go in there to buy a record. There he would there, yeah, there he'd be serving. Be serving Fantastic. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, obviously so many musicians have worked Bowie in record shops. Bowie worked at furloughs? Well, Bowie, Bowie got his first um, Saturday job, age 14, in um, Furlongs, which Furlongs. was a Bromley shop. And... Uh, he uh, didn't last long there, but he gives it... I think he got fired for daydreaming, but uh, yeah. he um, gives that famous quote where he says, it taught me the power of music, both on girls and boys separately, how you could play music and how people in the shop would react to what oh, you were playing and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, he was an intelligent guy, David, so he was obviously always taking notes from an A. And then later, when he worked in advertising, he used to go to Joe Bell's and he said he bought a John Lee Hooker record there that changed his whole sound in the sense him and his... Mates playing in a teenage band suddenly sort of, I think they called themselves the Crawling King Snakes or something King after Beach, that, didn't they? Yeah. that record. But yeah, I mean, Dusty, Dusty Springfield, Springfield, she worked in Squires out Squires in Ealing. Ealing. Yeah. And one of the uh, customers there was Pete Townsend, who talks in his autobiography of buying uh, blues records at Squires. So I always wonder, was it now Dusty serving him behind the counter? Oh, that's their, their eyes meeting. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah. If he bought some Motown, she would have liked that, like... <laughs> Nice one. But there's a, bit, there's a bit later on, actually, but with, with, where um, uh, the Pete Burns of Dead or Alive works, I think yeah. it's in Probe Records, and he's yeah. just sort of, he becomes Pete Burns in yeah. the record shop. He yeah. becomes this incredibly extravagant character with these amazing clothes and amazing hair, and the group effectively forms, you know, in the, in the record shop. Yeah. Know, that's the entire character. I mean, Probe is amazing, because it had, before Pete, it had uh, Julian Cope working behind the counter. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And the bloke out of Frankie Goes to Hollywood who's not Holly. So, you know, there's two Paul singers. Paul Rutherford. And that's it, yeah. Paul. So, and then uh, Pete. So, uh, you know, unemployed local musicians waiting on stardom. Yeah, go yeah, to probe, yeah. get a job. And, yeah. and Pete was obviously the most famous of them all because, uh, you know, he was such a character. And, and he had that, you know, very dark scouse wit. And there's a story in the book of there was a skinhead who was uh, bullying the kids around there. And Pete leapt over the counter kicked him out of the shop and then pierced him on the steps with his stiletto, you know, to make the point. Yeah. So, so, so Pete may have... Uh, Point well made, I think. You know, yeah, yeah. He, he may have been a cross-dresser, but he carried himself like a Liverpool doctor. Like a Liverpool doctor, exactly, yeah. So, yeah, a legendary, um, you know. And even today, obviously, you find, uh, you know, if you're going to record shops, like chatting with people, and they'll tell you they're in bands or the DJs. or yeah. It's carried on, obviously, the sense of you want to be where the music is until your own music pays you enough that you don't have to go and do the nine-to-five. It's the most endearing thing about Elton John is the fact that and he probably still does it. He used to go into the Virgin Megastore every month or whatever yep. and buy just about everything. Yep. Two copies, three copies. Yeah, for each of his houses. For different yeah. houses. Yeah. Yeah. He'd be a chauffeur would be behind him carrying a great pile. Do you remember there was one time he took posh uh, spice in there and um, it was reported in the papers and Elton just walked around as he does buying and she was terrified because the general public were around her and she, she wasn't used to, you know, being anywhere with her normal people. Yeah, Elton yeah. was just, get on with her, buy some yeah, records. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was uh, the Virgin up in Oxford Street, which right. is long gone. Yeah, but I just love the idea that, you know, when he was 14... You could only imagine success in terms of the number of records it would buy you. Yeah. yeah. And so when he was 40 and 50 and he could buy everything, he did. Yeah. Which and is he still great. does, apparently. He, he never grew out of it at all. No, It's an no. extraordinary thing. Um, so things change in the early 70s, I suppose, uh, with the arrival of Virgin 
in the UK. Absolutely. They, which the first Virgin Shop, which I remember, was above Shelley's Shoes. Yeah, that's Shelley's the first shoes, yeah. Virgin Shop. Yeah. Um, and what was the scam that Richard Branson was running? Because he was trying to avoid purchase tax, yeah. wasn't he, by loading up a van load of records and then driving them abroad. Yep. He, he found out that uh, if you uh, bought records from abroad, you didn't have to pay VAT. So he, he had lined up these vans of new release albums drive, uh, get on the ferry, go to France, and then just turn around, turn and, around come and come back. back. Yeah. And obviously they used to have stickers to show you'd paid the VAT, and he obviously hadn't. And he was selling these cheaper than HMV and such could do. But obviously the scam got found out. Obviously someone in HMV dobbed him in or something, and um, he got... Uh, you got fined yeah, £60,000, which is... It's a lot of money. That's it? a lot of money. Which he had to borrow from his mum. Yeah, his mum put a mortgage on the house or something to pay. Yeah, that's right, that's right. But uh, they, they give that as the excuse that Virgin expanded so quickly because they had this big fine to pay back. And he had realised that, because he'd started off running Student, a magazine for young people, and the only thing that Student had succeeded in was when it offered mail-order records and all this money came in in postal orders... And he thought, right, forget the magazine. Post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. sell them records. And that's why he tried to do the discount records. Okay, that didn't really work. So what he did was he emphasized the hippie shop, the student shop. You could um, sit on beanbags. They'd give you free lentils and instant coffee. You could smoke free whatever you lentils. wanted. You had the there, enemy and melody de- maker. There's one detail in this book that, that I'd completely forgotten about Virgin. Was that you, they used to, you used to sit in the airplane seats. Right. Right. Well, I, I, remember. I, I, remember I do remember yep. that. Yeah. yeah. People told me at one point they had aeroplane seats. Yes. Yeah. I can. I can remember that. Put the headphones on in your huge, yeah. and you had headphones such as an air traffic controller yeah. would have been wearing. You know, yeah. huge things that weighed down your head. You know, but it was a, it was a, t- a different vibe, wasn't it? In the, in the Virgin shops, and I guess the shops you talked about, Musicland and One Stop, were very much like the jazz shops. They were very hip. They were you know catering to an you know, the hippie elite. And, and Branson, you know, he wasn't really interested in music. He was interested in making money. So his attitude was everyone's welcome. You don't have to know who plays keyboards in the nice or who played um, bass in, you know, Mothers of Invention's second record or things like that. And so his shops became big hangouts. I mean, the Liverpool shop, which was the one first he opened after London, at one point they had to get security to kind of keep the numbers down because all the kids in Liverpool were just hanging out in there and treating it as a, a party place because NIMS still existed at the time but NIMS again was like you said it was very formal Formal. Uh, it wasn't yeah. the Epstein family running it anymore but the people that ran it kept it as a formal yes sir uh, please over there kind of shop well Virgin came in offering this kind of alternative rock culture it's a lifestyle wasn't it yeah, yeah it's a lifestyle and it, I, one of my interviewees says when it arrived, opened in Sheffield uh, they put on a free concert with I think um you know, some of the bands that had just started signing. And Sheffield had never seen anything like it before because, you know, here was this kind of, like, place to hang out and hear long-haired music and get imports and, you know, just go for it. It's like a party so the, place. And, that, and then what starts happening all over the country is, is that all the, uh, the, the music shops, which had been family-run mm-hmm. former white goods uh, retailers, yep. suddenly start being called Mr. Fantasy. That's it. Yeah, right. And yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Anything vaguely hippie. Yeah. Uh, they, they all have that kind of name. And they all specialise in... the spinning the, disc. Yeah. 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 They all specialise in the kind of records that were on You Can All Join In, the island. Yeah, Or The Rock Machine Turns You On. That was a, a whole revolution, wasn't it? In small shops yeah. up and down the country. Well, before... Uh, the late 60s, and this is something the Beatles changed, P- 
people predominantly bought 45s. LPs were largely for um, South Pacific, My yep. Fair Ladies. These were the big sellers. Yep. Um, you know, uh, James Last and people like that. That was what adults bought. They bought albums of easy listening and show tunes and kids bought 45s. Obviously, the Beatles changed it. I think you mentioned just earlier, uh, Sergeant Pepper selling 200 copies in a day from one little record shop yeah. in Piccadilly yeah. Circus. And and so record shops realized they could make a lot of money selling rock records and, uh, to kids. And um, so they had to adapt to this, or else Virgin would have eaten you alive because but suddenly a, everyone A lot down. of those record shops probably didn't make an awful lot of money at all, but they were, they were a kind of nice way to earn a living for... For the hippie who happened to live in St Albans or Wakefield or yep. whatever, you know, what I mean? have a record shop rather than you know sell fridges like your father yeah, did. Or yeah, whatever. no, it's true. Uh, so um, you you focus also in your book on the, on those shops that uh, you know were, were the beginnings of labels and whole kind of mini empires, I yep. suppose. We're looking here at a picture of Jeff Travis in Rough Trade, and uh, is this Terry, Terry Hooley? Terry Hooley, Hooley of yeah. Good Vibrations. In, in tell, tell us about these people. Okay, well, Rough Trade opens uh, late 1976 in Ladbrook Grove. And Jeff Travis is uh, a guy that's just come back from hitchhiking around America and bought a lot of records and doesn't know what he wants to do with his life other than, as a lot of music fans used to do, think, oh, I'll open a record shop. He's very fortunate, and he, he says this himself, that punk came along because the first few months, I think if he opened in July 76 or something, nothing much was happening. He was selling a few albums and that, and, and he just picked up on it. He was waiting for something to happen. Uh, Good Vibrations in Belfast opened in 77. Terry Hawley had been a record trader as doing the stalls, selling at markets and that, and he and a few friends, you know, in, in, in you know, Belfast at the height of the troubles realised that a record shop was a good place for, you know, people to come together and share music and such, which is why they gave it the time, you know, good vibrations. And very quickly, you know, he was, well, into his 30s, he was way older than the punk generation, but he realised that punk was what the kids were excited about as he had been excited by the hippie stuff in the 60s. And that they wanted to go and buy records, their records, where you couldn't buy other records. Yep. They didn't want Andy Williams records yep. near them exactly. or whatever. Exactly. So these guys were running specialist stores. Now, Jeff Travis put out, started up the Rough Trade label because uh, he'd sold a 45 for a French band. And then they said, well, we've made a recording of another one, you know, French punk band. Um, and we don't want to go through all the effort of pressing it up in that ourselves. Would you would you consider doing it? Because he'd been their major, you know, sales point. And so he set up Rough Trade Records to do that. Sold records, signed a Belfast punk band. Actually, the Stiffle Fingers, fingers yeah. sold yeah. a huge amount of records, and, and realised like I'm on my way as a record mogul, which he remains to this day. And that, and obviously, he's no longer part of Rough Trade Records. The shops, he is Rough Trade Records, the label that split when uh, there were all kinds of uh, financial conundrums. Good Vibrations, it's most famous for uh, putting out a record called Teenage Kicks by The Undertones, which is John Peel's favourite record, and you hear it everywhere all and the time. And a documentary was made about it, wasn't it? About well, a, a great feature film was feature made film. about it yeah. called Good Vibrations, yeah. which is the best film ever made about a record shop. It's, it's way better than High Fidelity. It really captures that um, era of the troubles, yeah. Punk rock and, and, and Terry Hawley was mad. He wasn't like Jeff Travis is a very normal guy who obviously tries to balance the books and things. Terry Hawley 
he just had that crazy passion to do things. And of course, you know, his shops went bankrupt. He lost his wife. He, uh, everything, but he, he did, he did a great thing for Belfast punk. And, uh, you know, he ran a record shop until a couple of years ago when he said he, he was you know, stepping down because of ill health. He's, he's not a young bloke, obviously. Right. So we must talk about record tape exchange because I was so thrilled. To find the, your whole book is so enthusiastic about all these places, these wonderful shrines, you know, and meeting places. And you get to record tape exchange, you say, very, very unfriendly, terribly bad prices, massive prices when they sell them on. And the guy who ran it, or probably still does run it, Brian Abrams. Abrams, That's right. He had this extraordinary thing where he would only employ people who had a degree, so very soon they felt overqualified and a bit pissed off to be there. And also, ask them questions about the birds, am I right, in the interviews. If you didn't know anything about the birds, you didn't get the job. That's right. Apparently, if he liked you, he'd ask you questions about the birds. If he didn't like you, he'd ask you questions about Poco. Oh, Poco. Oh, really? could tell. You'd really fail. At least, you know, if you're a music fan, you might know. Phenomenally unfriendly places. Yeah, I don't know if anyone else has had experience like that. But record shows. My God. So, have you ever worked in a record shop? Uh, I've done um, part-time stuff in a place in Camberwell called Rat Records, which is a really good second-hand shop. Right. And I must say, it was a friendly shop. And I used to work there with a Trinidadian bloke called Anthony Joseph, who some of you might have heard of. He does kind of spoken word jazz fusion, like a Gil Scott heron with a right. West Indian thing. And he's really good. And he's just, um, he's out there touring and stuff. So he had his highs, you know, so unprised. You, so you didn't find that going behind the counter in a record shop turned you into a monster like it does with... So many people. No, no. Well, I, I was only there when uh, someone wouldn't make it, and the bloke would call me up. And uh, right. being a struggling freelancer, I'd take the you know cash in hand job for the right. afternoon. And right, because the Jack Black character in High Fidelity is fantastic, isn't he? Oh, you, yeah. When the people yeah, come yeah, in and yeah. wants to buy a, a beef art bootleg, he says, I don't feel like selling it today. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It's just wonderful. Somebody I mean, comes in and asks for Stevie Wonder. I just called yeah. to say, yeah, well, is, any is it for a friend? Are they in a coma? Yeah. Right. I've worked with people like that. Yeah, people in record shops are very often like that well they used to be hopefully they aren't these days because you know I think the thing is record shops if they want to survive these days they can't alienate their customers and those oh days. I don't know oh. you might find that they can but so, yeah, they, the, go on I was just going to say the maddest I think second hand shop ever uh, was in um, Rupert Street just at the bottom of Berwick Street this is Berwick Street the photos taken on Cheapo Cheapo it really was like a oh, big yeah, play yeah. Uh, terrific uh, Really, you'd go in there and they'd scream at you and they'd scream at one another. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was terrifying. Just <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's good. This, this. Uh, Sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say the the. I wanted to know what the what the reason was that that, that Oasis took the cover of What's the Story, Morning Glory in Berwick Street, presumably because it was just this incredible avenue of record shows, isn't it? Reckless and Sister Rain. This picture was taken at five o'clock. The cover picture was taken at five o'clock on a Sunday morning. But it, was it was it to do with the idea of celebrating the old record shop? Did they just feel very strongly about that street? Well, obviously Oasis, uh, one of their first singles, um, Shaker Maker, celebrates Mr. Sifters, which is the record shop where Noel Gallagher bought all his 45s as a kid. So yeah. I think it's fair to say Noel has an affection for record shops. I don't know. The bloke, uh, Duncan, who runs Reckless, told me one of the Oasis people, not not the band, but one of the insiders came in one time and told him the reason the shop, uh, the photo was uh, taken was because when the band finished uh, the album and mastering it, they went out on the town 
and uh, that someone lost the master on Berwick Street. And so, oh, right. uh, so um, that they they used it for that reason that um, to, to, to you know to make a sense of well, you know yeah, yeah. someone was so trashed they put it down on Berwick Street and they wandered yeah. off. And that. so, th- so that's when about nineteen ninety four, ninety five, something like that. So you know, within within kind of ten years, loads of these places have gone, haven't yep. they? Just yep. so the, the the dance shop. Just want to talk briefly about the dance sh- shop because. That was a lot of the growth in Soho, wasn't it? In the, yes, in, it was, everywhere. I mean, I arrived in the UK in 91, and I was kind of unaware of techno and house, and that I'd been in the States for the last 18 months, and I arrived, and suddenly there was these little record shops everywhere, and they were kind of odd, because often the records had no sleeves, and yeah, information just a yeah, yeah, white label, yeah. And, um, yeah. and the music they were playing was yeah. different than any I'd yeah. heard, and obviously this was... You know, the whole Acid House revolution, uh, you know, dance music shops were everywhere. I mean, I've got Aralus was in Croydon, and, and so Swag was one of them. And, and Croydon was had the huge Beano's, the biggest second-hand record shop in um, Europe. It had the big Virgin, and then it had these little dance shops and everywhere. And DJs would try out mixes, wouldn't they, yep. in these shops? This one and Big Apple, they would actually you know, they would do, they would play records to see what the reaction was, and then yeah. edit them as a consequence. Yeah, I mean, they employed DJs, they'd test out the mixes, the yeah. pirates, remember Pirate Radio? Yeah. would shop in them, then they'd give them shout-outs on the radio, and so it was a thing. The dance shops was the last great era of uh, the UK record shop, because they sprung up everywhere. They were run often by... Uh, you know, Obsessives, Warp Records, which is a very, very well-respected record label, started as a Fon, a Sheffield yeah. dance music shop. And that. so, they, they, again, this process we're seeing of people setting up record shops, setting up record labels, going through, going forward, DJs coming out of them, all kinds of stuff. But it's amazing to me to reflect on how fast the big ones just disappeared. Yep. You know, I, I can remember, and it's probably... God, it's 2002 or whatever. Going into HMV, the head office, um, and uh, having to talk with them about advertising or whatever, and I asked them whether Amazon had affected their sales and said no. Wow. Nah. Wow. You wait. It just, you know, it came, yeah. you know, it's so fast. How, our price. How, how these places yeah. folded up. I yep. just want to... Just want to finish by talking about you know as I going referring to my comments at the beginning you know it's only when things have gone away yeah yep. <laughs> you know during in the time when record shops were on every corner we didn't have record shop day or anything no. like that no. nobody thought about let's celebrate this wonderful organ of culture and commerce <laughs> yeah. in the midst of our lives nobody thought about that at all. What do you think about Record Store Day, which we've just had, I think? Yeah, we've ago. just had. And, I mean, it was started in 2007 in the US by a Baltimore shop that was, as, as you know, they were all closing and they wanted to draw attention, support your local record store. And now it's become this, excuse me, massive industry. I looked at the list of what was being issued for this year's record store and there were things like a U2 picture disc, the Stone's Satanic Majesty again with the 3D sleeve that you used to pay a lot for a second hand if you wanted it. Oh, Bruce Springsteen, coloured vinyl, greatest hits. I mean, so much nonsense goes with it. But the fact is, you know, a lot of the independent stores say they do better with record store than they do at Christmas. So for them, it gets people that wouldn't perhaps normally go in and buy something at 
so it works in the same way as Mother's Day works of, you know, you should always be nice to your mum, but at least, you know. <laughs> Once a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah at least on <laughs> that one day, you know. Mother's Day cards are not made artificially rare in order to get no. prizes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, all that hustle side of it, that people rush in there or queue for hours, then go straight home and put it on eBay, and that is, I avoid it. I don't go out and buy a rarity. Do you think it'll still be there in 10 years' time? Uh, you probably, if people are making money out of it, but it'll be on a much lesser sense. It's going right. to peak, you know. It's going to get to that point where people appreciate because there are so many new record shops around the UK and in other places. I'm often amazed when someone contacts me and says, "There's a place here or a place there, or we're opening a place." So we are back. In, it's like Doug Dobell post World War Two. You know, he wanted to set up a jazz store. He did so. And he did it with great passion. He never sold the top 40. He never sold Mantovani or South Pacific and that. He sold what he wanted to do. And the people opening the new record stores today, they're selling, whether it's electronic or indie rock from America or Afrobeat or whatever. So we're in a little kind of halcyon period of, let's see what happens with the new shops. But meanwhile, there's Gar's book, Going for a Song, a Chronicle of the UK Record Shop. Would you please thank Garth Cartwright? This podcast was brought to you by The Word.